Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to Genesis chapter 43. And we read for our text part of verse 11. If it must be so. The whole verse reads, Their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh nuts and almonds. And take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carried again in your hand. Peraventure it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again unto the man. But it is particularly these words of resignation, a realising of the must of Jacob. Now I do know that these words in our Bibles are in italics and some ministers will tell you that we don't need to take any notice of them. All that it means is that words that are not, they have an underlying Hebrew or Greek word, but words in italics are necessary in translation to bring the true meaning of the text. So it's not right just to dismiss them as not being part of the word of God. They are necessary in translation. And so it is conveyed here that Jacob is realising that he must send Benjamin to Egypt. He has tried and tried to get out of it. The Lord in his providence has sent Joseph down into Egypt through means Jacob did not know. He thought that Joseph had been slain by wild beasts. That's what his brethren had deceived his father to make his brother believe had happened. And of course Rachel, she bore us the two children, Joseph and Benjamin. And Jacob did not now want to lose Benjamin, the son of his old age, the same as he had lost Joseph. And he was very, very protective of him. Another aspect, of course, was this. Already the man in Egypt that they had portrayed as governor over all the land had already locked up in prison Simeon, and Simeon was there. Me, he says, he had bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin also. All these things, Jacob, he says, are against me. And he is labouring to stop this happening, stop Benjamin going down into Egypt. As much as he can do, he is trying to put off that time and find out some other way. But in our text, he is brought to realise this is one of the musts of the will and purposes 
of God. There is no way out. It must be so. They are hemmed in. They've got a famine. They've got no food. They need the food. They know that they can get it in Egypt. And they know also that Joseph had told them that they were not to come unless they brought Benjamin. He wanted to see his brother Benjamin. He wanted them to come again as well, to give them a reason that they should come again. He knew there was the famine. He also he locked up Simeon and uh, there was those means that he used to hem his father in so that he must send Benjamin. And our text is when he first realises that it is so and then what happens, what follows when he realises it, if it must be so, now do this. And he has that which follows on from his realisation, it must be so. So I want to look firstly at the Lord ordering all things according to his will as musts in his providential ordering of the world and of our lives. Things that must happen, must take place. And then secondly, I want to look that some of the musts of Scripture, some of those things that must happen, must come to pass. And then I want to look lastly at acting in accordance with what we know must be so. It's one thing to be convinced that a thing must happen, but then it is another to act in a gracious and God-honouring way according to what we realise must take place. We could, as dear Jacob here acts, in a way of peace, of compliance, of sending a presence. We could, on the other hand, act in a very bitter and angry way allowing it should be so, but kicking and screaming along the way, as it were. We don't find Jacob doing this. He does the opposite. So I want to then look firstly at the ordering of God and look at some of the other lives of the people of God. When the Lord has a plan when the Lord has a purpose, then things must take place. And I particularly want to think of those where the people involved, like Jacob here, have had to come to terms with what the Lord's plan and purpose is. This account here with Jacob it concerned him. It was the path he was having to walk. And you and I have a path to walk as well. And 
I believe especially if we are the Lord's people, there'll be some things that are not an option to us. There are some things that we must walk through or must do, must make a decision, a move for the Lord's purposes to be carried out. And I'm not suggesting that we could be in a position to frustrate the Lord in his plans. But some of the Lord's people have tried very, very hard to. And one that I will begin with is that of Moses. So the children of Israel, through Joseph, had gone down into Egypt, but they were to come up out again. Joseph was used of God to bring them into Egypt and part of the must with Jacob was of going down into Egypt. But then when they come out again, if we look at Exodus chapter 4, here we see the Lord is sending Moses. We know the Lord had prepared Moses. The way he had been born was a, a birth of which he had been preserved and great providences associated with it, with Pharaoh's daughter finding him in the bulrushes, in the ark made by his mother and then being raised by his mother as a nurse and then being brought up in Pharaoh's household and for 40 years learning how to live in a palace and live of those that were governing a country. And then to have 40 years in the backside of the desert because his work was to lead the children of Israel 40 years through the desert. So there he had to be taught in keeping his father-in-law's sheep there. But then when the Lord appears to him in the burning bush, as he keeps the sheep, he sees the bush burning, but it is not consumed, and he seeks to draw near, and then uh, the Lord speaks to him uh, from the bush, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush in chapter 3, verse 4, and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And then the Lord tells him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And he tells them, tells Moses of what he is going to do, a great work, a mighty work, a work that he had told to Abraham in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. And he says then to Moses in verse 10, Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, 
out of Egypt. Now remember when 40 years earlier Moses had seen his brethren fighting one another. He tried to separate them. Before that he had separated an Egyptian and one of his brethren killed the Egyptian, buried him. And then it was said, Wilt thou kill me as thou killed the Egyptian the other day? And uh, Moses, he says, Surely this thing is known. And he fled from Pharaoh who sought his life. And we are told that at that time Moses thought they would understand that by his hand that they, he would deliver or they would be delivered out of Egypt. He had had an intimation. He understood the same as Joseph through the dreams knew that God was going to use him in some way. And, jo and Moses knew that as well. But now it comes to the time that it is to happen and Moses is humbled. Moses has a low view of himself. Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? And all the dialogue we have here between God and Moses is Moses bringing one objection after another why he should not go why someone else should go instead of him. The Lord answers all of those objections. He gives him signs. He gives them him those things when he says the people won't believe me. He said, do these signs. Do them before them. Before them. Tell them that the God of our fathers hath appeared unto you. And Yet Moses, he has even more objections. And in chapter 4 then, he uses the last objection in verse 10. O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord answers that. He said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind, have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. In verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well, and also behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. Thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you what he shall do. And then we read that Moses then went and returned to his father-in-law and he went and did as the Lord bade him to do. Moses was brought to that path that he must go. He couldn't put it off to another. He couldn't 
get the Lord to change his mind to send someone else, however many arguments that he brought forth, the Lord's ordering of providence, the Lord's preparing of Moses was that he would not change. We read, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. But sometimes, like in this case, sometimes it may seem to be a great work to make someone willing, not force them, because in the end they have been made willing and they have gone and they have done what the Lord would have them to do. But we need to view these instances, even of those that we may have such a great high rightly esteem of, viewing them as the Lord's people, but remembering what was said of Elijah, that he is a man subject to like passions as we are. And Moses, Jacob, they're the same. Things before them, they shrink from, draw back from, and yet are brought face to face with the Lord's must. You must walk in this path. You must walk in this way. And I'm not going to take my hand off you. I'm not going to stop troubling your conscience. I'm not stop sending words through the ministry to you until you do walk in this way because it is appointed appointed by God he is of one mind and none can change him or turn him or say unto him what doest thou so Moses knew what it was to be faced with one of the must of the Lord in the ordering of this world we think then how it was the case when the children of Israel this time they had been brought out of captivity Babylonish captivity brought back into their own land again this is in the days of Esther and there rises up Haman and seeks to destroy the Jews and bring the king to make a decree that on a certain day all of the Jews would be put to death. The people of the land would rise up against them. But God in his providence and the book of Esther is full of providences. He brought Esther to be the queen. Vashti had displeased the king, he put her away and Esther had been brought in and Esther was a Jew and her uncle uh, or cousin, one that looked after her, he sat at the king's gate and we have Mordecai viewing and realising the Lord's ordering and providences in bringing Esther into that position. So he speaks to her 
and says to her that she is to go in and make supplication uh, to the king. And he says, uh, Mordecai made known to Esther the decree and what had been done and he gives Hatak uh, the copy, the king's chamberlain who had access to Esther, uh, gives him a copy of the writing of the decree. And we read in verse 8, to declare it unto her, that is unto Esther, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him, and to make request before him for his people. And we read that when Hatak then came and told Esther that word, then uh, she gave a word back to Mordecai. She didn't immediately say, yes, I'm going to do that. She says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces to know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. So those words then were told to Mordecai. And then Mordecai answers this in verse 13, chapter 4. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth? whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it was through these words that Esther was constrained then to go in unto the king. She was brought to that must through the means of Mordecai, drawing her attention to the providences that had brought her there, the timing, also his persuasion, the Lord would by her or by another, but he would certainly deliver the Jews at that time. Mordecai had a very clear view of the Lord's protection over his people and the promises of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that should come through that people, and he knew they couldn't be extinguished, they couldn't be destroyed. But Esther, she is in that place that she must venture. Her life hangs in the balance. She could be slain in walking in that way, but she ventures. And so we have another case of one of the Lord's people faced with a must in their life. They can't suddenly decide this is nothing to do with me. I'm going to walk a different way. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. 
I want the clock wound back. I want to change providence. Don't like the course it's going in. They couldn't do that. They had to go forward. One of the Lord's appointments. You think of the case in Ezra's day, similar time, when they had marriage and they had the work of dealing with This matter belongeth unto thee. We will be with thee. The people uh, pledged their support and help for him. But they were persuaded and Ezra, he knew as well that he was a matter that had to be dealt with and he was the one that had to deal with that. How often when it comes to things of greater importance, we'd rather perhaps another take the lead, another take the responsibility, another walk in that path, but no. And so throughout the history of the world, when the Lord wants a man, that man will be found, or a woman, and his providence will go on, his counsel will stand, his purposes will be brought to pass. And though men struggle against it, yet they shall walk in the way God has appointed for them and for their loved ones, as dear Jacob here finds here, the path for Benjamin was not to stay with his father in Canaan, but to go down into Egypt. Of course, later it was that they all went down into Egypt. But at first, there was to be a letting of him go, and he had to be brought submissive to that. So may we notice these things in our lives too, in providence. There'll be those things that are vital that we do make certain decisions, that we do take certain actions, that we do that which the Lord has appointed for us to do. We might think, oh, we're not up to it. We'll get someone else to do that role or to occupy that position. And we try this person, and we try that person, and we try another person, and in the end, we realise the Lord has a must, that actually we must do it ourselves. And so, in this way, we understand the Lord's will, and are very clear what the Lord would have us to do. We want to look then, secondly, at some of the musts of Scripture. The first one is that we must die. If we were to go back to Genesis and to dear Jacob, and we go a few chapters on to chapter 47. Then we read, The time drew nigh that Israel must die. He called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put I pray thee thy hand under my thigh. Deal kindly and truly with me, bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. And we hear this phrase again and again, of kings, of the Lord's people, 
that they must die. And since the fall, the sentence has been, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And as in a disobedience to God, rebellion against him, we have brought that sentence upon us. We died spiritually immediately, and every man must die. The soul must be parted from the body, return to God that gave it. Dust thou art, unto dust shalt thou return. We must return to dust. And yes, we know of Enoch and Elijah and of those that shall remain when the Lord returns that shall be changed and not die. But all men must die, and you and I must. It is that which, however much we might try and fight it, and some people do, they fight death right to the end. They try as much as, and it is really uh, in one way a right thing that we should have inbuilt with us that desire to maintain our lives and to do all we can to preserve them and to remain in health. But in the end, we shall die, we must die. We cannot overturn that sentence that God uh, has set forth. And if we were to think of, in Queen Esther's time, that sentence against the Jews could not be reversed, the same as Daniel going into the lion's den, couldn't be reversed. But there could be another decree made and Daniel could be delivered by the miraculous hand of God. But it must take place. The uh, Medes and the decrees of the Medes and the Persians, it, it cannot be altered. And the same sentence of God, God cannot just say, well, it doesn't matter. I won't enact that sentence. Man does not need to die. He does. He must die because of the sentence. And maybe all be persuaded of that, that death be something very personal, very real to us, that that is a path that we must walk through. When we're young, we can think that that is far off, and yet we have reminders of those who are very young that meet death. And as we grow older, we know that those years of shortening that we have left on the earth, and we must die the same as we've seen our parents and others breathe their last, so we shall breathe our last as well. <clears throat> that is one must. It's vital that we be resigned to and we act rightly in realising it must take place. Then we have a line to that. In the way of salvation, the must that the Lord Jesus Christ must die. Our Lord warned his disciples and said before them that the Son of Man must suffer many things of this generation, that he must be crucified, that he must be slain, and must then rise again from the dead. Those two on the way to Emmaus, the Lord said to them, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his kingdom? 
when our Lord is in the garden three times, praying to his Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he must drink that cup. He must endure the cross. And when he was in the garden, they went to take him. And they had the swords. Put up the sword within thy, uh, within its sheath. The cup that my father hath given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Thinkest thou not that my father could press, I could pray my father, and he presently give me twelve legion of angels, seventy-two thousand angels. But how then should the scripture be fulfilled? The scriptures must be fulfilled. And that is very, very evident, especially in our Lord's suffering, a substitutionary offering. We must die, but for the Lord to save his people, he must die. He must lay down his life. There is salvation in none other way but the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, and that can never be got out of. It will either be us and our blood, or Christ and his blood. Either us suffering eternally, and eternally banished from God, eternal death, or the Lord Jesus Christ suffering in our place. And this is the gospel, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in accomplishing the salvation of God for his people, he suffered in their place and bled to put away their sin. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So central to the mass of God in providence and especially in salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Must ye, I wish ye not that I must be about my father's business was the whole emphasis of his mission and that which he accomplished here below. But thirdly, there's the must our Lord insisted upon. Ye must be born again. A new birth, a spiritual birth, no salvation, no entering the kingdom of God, no entering the path of the people of God, the life of the people of God, no entering the church of God, except by a spiritual birth, born of the Spirit of God, quickened into spiritual life. It's called calling or regeneration. Being born again, a new birth. Spiritual ears, spiritual eyes, spiritual feelings, spiritual appetite. Old things passed away, all things become new. Not just turning over a new leaf, not just a superficial change, not something just learnt by man, but a spiritual birth of which the Holy Spirit is the author one of the musts of Scripture, that if we are the people of God, must include us. And if not, with all men, 
most miserable. But then fourthly, that which the disciples, the apostles sought to encourage them who were already in tribulation. And they said this, that he must, too much tribulation. Our Lord, Lord, he says, that in me you shall have peace, in the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And the apostles were very emphatic on this. He must, through much tribulation or great trouble, enter the kingdom. The idea of a smooth path through this world was something that is to be banished from the minds and thoughts of the people of God. And it is God that chooses out that tribulation. Some it is troubles in their families, some it is health troubles, the Apostle Paul, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him. We think of Joseph's tribulations and troubles. We think of Jacob's, what he had to walk through. Each one has that which is appointed by God that we must walk through. This is not our rest, it is polluted. And all the while we think, well, somehow the Lord owes us to have a nice, smooth, easy path. No, it is not so. And yes, we might look at some of the Lord's dear people and they have been born, they've lived, they've died and as to all outward intents, they don't seem to have had the tribulation. But quite often we can misjudge. I think it was Mr Covell, the minister, the pastor at West Street Croydon, that a visitor to his home said, Mr Covell, I cannot understand how it is that your ministry is so blessed, you're so helped and evidently a child of God, and yet don't have tribulation in your life. And so he took him to a side room and opened the door, and there he had a very afflicted son, hidden from the world, unknown to that visitor, and yet Mr. Koval had a trial, a tribulation all the time in his life. Sometimes we may look on others and envy their lot, thinking that their lot is easier than ours. But we do not know what constitutes their tribulation. One thing we do know, that he must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom. There's another must that is a strange one we might think the Apostle Paul introduces and that is that there is speaking to the Corinthian church that there must needs be heresies among you. Heresies are serious errors. They're not things of no consequence or no importance they are real errors. And of course, we think of one example with that Corinthian church that they said that there was no resurrection of the dead. The apostle, well, we get from that, the beautiful chapter in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, on the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he sets before them the truth. But the reason is given us that there must be heresies among you, that they that are approved might be made manifest. And there could be a church with uh, those in it that really may be despised. They're not a minister, they're not a deacon, they're just a member of that church, or maybe they're not even a member of that church. Then there comes an error in their midst, and the pastor does nothing about it. The deacons turn a blind eye to it or don't really discern the importance of it. But that individual sees that that is a vital point and error and they speak out. And that's why it's said that there must needs be heresies among you, that those that are hidden amongst the staff, those who really know the truth, they speak up for that occasion. And... It does seem a strange thing. We think, well, we'd like to have a church that doesn't have division, that doesn't have those in it that are going to teach real errors. We don't want to have to deal with that. But the Apostle says, no, the church of God, there must needs be. And there's a reason for it. The church of God is not going to go on just smoothly with everyone agreeing, everyone going along, the Lord allows it so. There are those in an assembly that bring in things that are wrong. If you and I see things that are so contrary to the word of God and they're not being dealt with, the Lord give grace and help to speak out humbly, sincerely, faithfully, but not be silent. You think of the letters in the Revelation, there was two reproofs on two of those churches. One, that they had those that allowed there to be in their assemblies those that were held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And then there was another church that not only allowed people in their assembly to hold wrong doctrine, but to actually teach it and proclaim it. But there's a warning. We might think, well, don't worry about it. We can have some members. We know that they actually hold error. We, 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 we just we won't deal with it as long as they keep the peace and keep quiet. But if that error is a vital error, if it is a serious heresy, it cannot be allowed just to sit quietly in a church. It won't remain like that is to be dealt with. But then there's a last thing that I mentioned, and that is there must, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is a mystery, we know, how it shall be that those that are pardoned and forgiven, whose sins are cast as far as the east is from the west away, that yet we shall appear before the judgment seat. But remember, it is the judgment seat of Christ. It is the God we have known here, our Redeemer, our Saviour, our Shepherd, 
the one who has shed his blood to put away our sin, the one whom we love and who loves us, that's whom we stand before, not an angry judge. And it is in the judgment that then the people of God shall be lifted up, shall be justified, that the reason why they are in heaven is not because of their goodness, they are sinners, but it is because of Christ's blood, because of his love to them, his everlasting love, because he has called them, because of what he has done for them. And in that great judgment day, the Lord shall own his people as his own. He shall own David. Yes, David sinned in adultery and murder. The Lord will say, I own him. I'll shed my blood to put away his sin. Though he sinned in that way, yet I pardoned and forgiven him. And so it shall be for all the people of God. Well, I want to look, lastly, at acting in accordance with what we know must be so. I want to uh, try to be brief, but uh, going where our text is, and we read further on when we introduced the text, that Jacob doesn't just say, if it must be so now, go. He says, do this. And he's taking the best fruits of the land. He's taking a present to the man and double money. He's giving specific direction. He's giving every indication that though it must be so, he now sees God's purpose. He sees God's hand. And instead of fighting any more, he's going to go along with it to the best of his ability. And Moses was the same. He went, and he went to Pharaoh. Esther was the same. She bade that Mordecai, that they make fasting and prayer. And then she was going to venture in unto the king. And if I perish, I perish. But she was resolved to do it so to actually act in this way. And it's a real test of whether we believe or fall under what we see as the must of God is to how we actually react to it. If we believe and know that we must die, how does that affect us? Do we live as if we live forever? as if the grave wasn't before us, if we believe one of the musts is that we be born again, does that feature in our prayers? Do we ask the Lord that he will grant us that? We know, of course, that the Lord, beginning with life, must come as the very first thing but when we've been brought up under the sound of the truth, especially, and we know the truth in our head, there are some things that we ask because we are instructed in the word of what is vital. 
suppose think of John Raven, the minister of Smallfields and Red Hill. His pastor was Gray Hazelrig. Mr. Raven said that there was never a time that he did not enjoy going to the house of God and to get on with the people of God. But he knew there was something lacking and his pastor did as well. And that was the new birth. And that is what he sought and his pastor sought for him. And the Lord granted it to him. When you think that the likes of Mr. Philpot could actually be an ordained minister of the gospel before they were truly converted and called. And they're not the only ones. And so the vital necessity is that we realise the must and we ask of the Lord that he would grant us that birth, that new birth. We think of the path of tribulation. How do we react to those things that come? Is it in Jacob's spirit? When we think of what was Jacob's thing, his struggling with letting go of Benjamin. We have those situations too. And how do we act? How, how do we go on when we realise the musts of the Lord? And so, like Jacob, there is a reaction. There is a following on with it when we are persuaded that this path, we must walk it down. We must walk it out to the honour and glory of God. It's a great thing to, as it were, walk in the footsteps of the flock and realise we have struggles like Jacob did, Moses did, Esther did, but realise we've got the same God, and the same God who's able to convince us and to show us his will and to walk in that path. And so I pray that this word might be a real help for us this evening, if it must be so now, and that the Lord has ordered it, that this word come at this season, this time, and he knows how, how it was that we had to brought this word this evening. If it must be so. Well, may the Lord add his blessing. Amen.